Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Avago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the Mitchell Institute's new report on unmanned aircraft capable of penetrating strike. But first, joining us today are Dr. Jerry McGinn, a soldier scholar who is the executive director of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at the School of Business at George Mason University, who also served in the Pentagon's Office of Manufacturing and Industrial Based Policy. And he is joined by his co-conspirator, Eric Lofgren, a research fellow who specializes in government contracting at the Baroni Center. They were both the co-authors, along with Lloyd Everhart, of uh, the report Execution, Flexibility, and Bridging the Valley of Death. Uh, and earlier uh, this week on Monday, uh, they hosted uh, a terrific event uh, that discussed the topic. Guys, welcome back to the program. Great to be uh, back with you, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Uh, a pleasure having you guys both back on. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much again for joining us. You had a, uh, an interesting event. Uh, Jim Ruoco, the Director of Air uh, Platforms and Weapons uh, in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, uh, was on the pa uh, panel. Katie uh, Wheelbarger, the Vice President of Global Program Support um, uh, from Lockheed Martin, was on the pa uh, panel, and former Pentagon Comptroller Elaine McCusker uh, of uh, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, were there as well. Eric, you're, you know, uh, uh, Jerry, you were the convening authority, but Eric, you were the moderator of the discussion. A lot of thoughtful uh, stuff, but a lot of folks at this point are asking sort of like what, what's new in this, right? I mean, you guys started this process out with a white paper, uh, then uh, followed it up obviously with a very thoughtful report. Uh, and you guys have been on to discuss that. And sort of we were interested we're now a couple of weeks afterward. We've heard a lot of statements from uh, senior leadership on this topic of bridging the valley of death. We also have the new uh, strategic capital fund uh, uh, that uh, Secretary Austin has announced, giving teeth to something that began in the last administration. Um, but just to start off, what from your standpoint were key takeaways, revel revelations? Because there are a lot of people who are listening to this, and Jerry, I want you to tackle this in a minute who are looking at this valley and saying it's getting no, no, no smaller nor shallower uh, at the end of the day. But what is it most interesting, Eric, that jumped out for you? Yeah, for me, the idea of moving towards portfolio management to help inject and delegate uh, decisions down so that you can inject new types of technologies much quicker into this requirements budgeting acquisition cycle. So getting away from that kind of reliance on prediction where you have to predefine the cost schedule technical. And so we talked a little bit about the portfolio management. The DOD has a new, well, it's not new anymore, but the directive on uh, capability management and how they're using that to kind of make those resourcing decisions in the budget to find capability gaps often connected to these war games um, or simulation exercises. So you're seeing those pop up. USD R&E has a big one from Heidi Shu's office. The Marines started one. You have the Space Warfighting Analysis Center and the Space Force. So what's the point of all these, right? Like there's lots of different ways and there's all of these debates, right? What is the capability portfolio or the different types of portfolios? Everyone has their own idea. 
right? There's an acquisition community that likes to organize around platforms like things like air vehicles and ships. That's the traditional way we do things. Um, the joint staff, the operators like to look at portfolios in terms of capabilities, cutting across platforms like battle space awareness, logistics, force application, R&E, they have their own ideas, right? Technology areas. Then you can look at them by domain, land, sea, air, cyber, maybe even EW. Um, but the whole, but then there's also other more difficult types of portfolios moving away from inputs towards kill chains, right? How do you connect specific sensors and effectors? Uh, mission threads or challenges like how do you defend Taiwan from a seaborne invasion? So you can imagine we have all these different program elements and programs, and they're a lot of them are multi-mission. They probably map up to all these different portfolios in different ways, right? But the real the real question here is how do we use those portfolios to provide better transparency and insight to, to folks in Congress, in OSD and otherwise, but also be able to move fast because the current system, right, as everyone is well aware, it takes years to get a requirement, years to get funding for it, and then maybe even a year or two to get on contract in the acquisition process. No longer can we wait five, six, seven years to start thinking about moving to a, a new kind of technology or solution the, a lot of these uh, new things that are needed, like networks for JADC2 joint domain, all uh, joint all domain command and control, right? They exist. These technologies exist. They're coming from the commercial sector, many of them. Uh, what isn't needed is not technology maturation risk reduction, but getting them into the force um, quickly and buying them at scale when they work and having a mechanism in order to delegate those decisions and move fast to go do that. So that's the whole idea of capability portfolios. But as we discussed, they're being used in many different ways and potentially not um, providing that ability to inject new technologies quickly through kind of flexible um, line items in the budget that provides that kind of basis of flexibility. You and I have talked about these issues for a very long period of time. And, you know, even at the end of a great event, people walk away from it going, so what do I know that's different? And is the needle actually moving? And there's a sense the needle is not really moving, um, right? I mean, the department still wants to reduce risk. It wants to buy things at mass and scale, um, right? Which sometimes innovative companies don't want to do. There's a concern and a drive to be fair uh, about this, right? So if McGinn Meradian does come up with the best technology in the world, um, it's it's still not easily adoptable as was maybe 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago, uh, right? There are fairness questions. Well, Loughran didn't get a chance. And then one of the bigs comes in and you know, buys into the program in a way that that you and I might not be able to as as startups, right? I mean, fundamentally, what's different here? And are, is the needle moving? Are you hearing anything that changes anything? Does the strategic capital approach change anything? Does the PPPE commission change anything? I mean, you know, there's a sense that we're sort of drowning in, and I'm not being critical to you guys, you guys are doing terrific empirical work. That's it's not a criticism. But I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been talking about these same issues for almost three decades now in the span of my career covering acquisition. At some point, you just have to ask like, okay, I mean, it is what it is and you got to either spend more money or live within as a captive within the system or actually really change things. And I don't know the extent which anything is changing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fair point. And uh, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a really great discussion. And um, um, but I, I do kind of have the question uh, that that you raised. It's, you know, there, I think there's a I mean, on the positive side, there's a clear recognition that, you know, um, 
that this is where we need to move. Um, you know, the department recognizes, uh, industry recognizes it, um, even to you know to a degree that the Hill recognizes it. But but you know, to be honest, like rewriting the directive on you know capability portfolio management is not not the solution. You know, so you know it's like we need to actually get a, I think a bit more practical in terms of within the system number one um by like you know as we identified in the report and it was actually came out in the discussion was that we need um you know we need to get um you know innovative programs that can go you know that can help uh, get capabilities to field faster and then we need to be able to catch those programs at the peo level at the program office level and we need you know how to go from six four and uh, to um to an actual program record we need to mechanically do that better uh, for, you know, where we're tying with operational exercises. And, you know, the, there's ideas there, but we need to get granular on that. And so we need to go within the system um, and, um, you know, to do that. And then we do have to fix the system in and of itself is not is not constituted, you know, to do things fast, given, you know, the whole palm nature and the PBB, which, uh, you know, uh, which needs to be addressed. And hopefully the commission will kind of help us move in that direction. But there's a lot we can do now. And I, I think that that needs to be the focus. And Lane brought out some of these ideas. Um, and that's where I'd like to see us go is like, how can we get, you know, the pitcher and the catcher, um, you know, to get these these um, technologies transitioning. Let's do pilots in services and maybe OSD pays a little, has a little bit of money to be able to, to then ha have that integrative um, perspective that they need. And maybe if that the new AI, or the new um, um, I the new integration office they're standing up for JADC2 within OSD. If that office can help integrate through and have money to be able to help direct this, then I think we could get there. But I mean, you know, we need to stop talking about it and do it. Eric, the last administration began the trusted capital uh, program, but it was, um, you know, one one person uh, passionately talking to audiences about why they shouldn't invest uh, in in China or accept Chinese investment, uh, and now we've transformed that into this administration with something that has is a broader um, initiative under st uh, strategic capital, uh, backed by the Secretary of Defense, which which is a very different thing. Um, you know, how do you think this new initiative changes uh, uh, changes the ball game, and can it and the PPBE Commission conspire to actually drive change, right? I mean, because at least members of Congress are more cognizant, we have to change and move more quickly. So that's always an important thing. Um, but ultimately, right, we have a lot of people who grew up in the system they grew up in, and I don't see any reason to change it at all. There are people who think PPBE is perfectly fine uh, and, and doesn't require reform as well. What's what's your sense on how both of these impact. And, and to read ahead to the next question, which I'm going to ask uh, Jerry, but if you want to glance off of as well, is there anything in the uh, House NDAA uh, that you look at and you say, okay, these are some positive things that help move the bus forward? Yeah. So, well, just starting with the NDAA, um, it's it's interesting how rapidly the growth has been of the NDAA, right? It was one page in 1962. It passed 10 pages in 1970, um, passed a thousand pages in FY20. And now it's over 4,000 pages in FY23. Um, so, of course, there's lots of riders that are coming onto this bill, the intelligence authorization, um, all sorts of other policies. Um, but I would be remiss to also uh, not mention that we still are in a continuing resolution 75 days in. And over the past 12 years, on average, continuing resolutions have been uh, 116 days and in some cases over half a year. So 
need to get a bill because there's lots of mismatched funds relative to what is needed um, to get some of these new technologies, but also just procurement rate in increases after uh, after Ukraine. But going back to the trusted capital, you know, what happened last year was, or actually a few years in the last administration, the trusted capital initiative was more about kind of like a platform and, and verifying, um, you know, who the investors were, whereas this new office of strategic capital is really thinking about, well, can we do loan guarantees from the government so that private capital is more willing to pro provide that kind of funding and have the guarantee that, well, if it doesn't work out, there's some kind of um, you're, you're going to get the money back and, and these firms aren't holding the bag. Now, those things are interesting. I think what is really uh, one of the issues here is, well, where the department still needs to buy the thing on the back end. The capital markets in the United States work fine, right? Um, they just don't have trust that the government will actually buy things at scale when they are found to be working. And so that is the, the crucial issue. And that gets back to our, our discussions on portfolios, right? Can you have tech insertion funding lines that are very flexible so that when you, you're not saying the actual contractor and you know literal specification is on the budget, so you can't move it without um, a reprogramming and an act of Congress. Can you broaden those? To, so you're looking really at outcomes and then you can be able to move if someone has a new acoustic, for example, on a submarine sonar um, kind of algorithm, can you just bring that in very quickly? Um, and just get the funding to them. And some of that goes back to not just these ideas of capability, portfolios and management processes, but also the people, right? Because a lot of people say, well, the program executive officers and program managers, their career incentives and tenure are not aligned to deliver within this Davidson window of 27, right? So how do you keep them there and incentivize them to really take the reins and be the owners of these types of capability portfolios um, to be able to drive that change rather than having these kind of rotational tours where you're executing someone's plan and whatever your plan is, you don't get to execute it because it's multiple years before that makes it into the budget. So we need to collapse those cycle times, get rid of the prediction and delegate those decisions, which is something over the past 30, 40, 50 years, the department and Congress has been reticent to do. But in the, this new era of strategic competition, it's difficult to find a different way out. Uh, Jerry, uh, just any uh, last thoughts on that? We're down to about a minute or so left in the program. And also whether or not you see anything in the NDAA that gives you, uh, you know, that you think is encouraging. Yeah, I, I do echo with uh, what Eric said about the length of the NDAA. You know, it just it, it's hard when documents get those so, so, so big that they can be digested by the department. Um, you know, as the former kind of receiver of, of the NDAAs, you know, it's really hard to. Uh, to deal with all these provisions. So I, you know, just encourage, you know, to be selective in how we do it. But, but one of the things that is in the NDA that I think is on uh, definitely on the right track is the, uh, the effort on munitions, um, because the, uh, one of the things that's become clear to me um, is that we just don't produce enough. Um, and, you know, we focus on, uh, on fairness and on competition and, and the most exquisite requirements to get the most exquisite solution. Uh, and then we build it, you know, to the, the minimum degree possible to meet the requirements and meet the program, you know, um, and to get for cost schedule performance. Um, and I just think we have to build in more, um, more production um, surge capacity and the like, and that's munitions, but it's more than munitions. Um, and uh, so, you know, because if we go into a, a fight with Taiwan um, uh, to defend Taiwan, 
we're going to go through platforms like, you know, like, you know, knife through butter. So you know, we're, we have to be able to surge. And I think we've shown with, you know, stingers and javelins and the like that, you know, that we have a sort of a brittle industrial base when it comes to searching production. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure uh, having you on. And if we don't talk between now and the holidays, hope you guys have terrific holidays and a very happy new year and look forward to working together uh, in 2023. Thanks so very much and keep up the great work. Thanks very much, Vago. Have a great uh, Christmas and holiday season and happy new year. Thanks, Vago. And joining us now is Caitlin Lee, the director of the Center for Unmanned and Autonomy Studies at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. She is also the co-author of a new report co-written with her co-conspirator, Mark Gunzinger, The Next Frontier, UAVs for Great Power Conflict, Part 1, Penetrating Strike. Caitlin, it is a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me here today, Vago. Uh, in, indeed, a, a pleasure and uh, looking forward to this uh, series because I think there's a lot of interest, obviously, in penetrating uh, strike, uh, especially as uh, the U.S. focus shifts uh, increasingly, uh, even as we try to help our Ukrainian friends uh, focusing on China, uh, obviously, as uh, the pacing threat, as the administration puts it. Um, so you guys are out with series uh, one or the part one of this uh, series, and you guys had a great rollout event. Uh, that had you in it, Gonzo, Major General Scott Job, the Plans, Programs, and Requirements Director at Air Combat Command Headquarters, Brigadier General Dale White, the Program Executive Officer for Fighters and Advanced Aircraft uh, at the Air Force uh, Material Command's Lifecycle Management Center, uh, the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems uh, President, Dave Alexander, uh, and Steve uh, Fendley, who is the president of Kratos' Unmanned Systems Division. Uh, and of course, uh, the your great dean, uh, Dave Deptula, uh, sort of help, help cue the uh, discussion up. And folks, uh, you can check it out on, on YouTube uh, if you want to find it. You know, one of the things, Caitlin, that you said was most fascinating is that the Air Force's top priority is the advanced collaborative aircraft. It goes by many uh, different uh, names and iterations. But you noted that it's a, it's a gap filler and a, and a critical capability gap filler. Um, what are some of the capabilities the Air Force needs from this generation of modular aircraft? What are the itches that it's got to be scratching? Yeah, Vago, thanks for that. I think we could talk for a long time about the capability and capacity problems that the Air Force has and has talked about publicly for some time now. Um, but to sum it up, uh, we, we in order to do this paper, we convened about 40 air, active duty Air Force, uh, split between active duty Air Force and industry folks and some DOD folks, all with expertise in designing UAVs. So these are the people that are literally going to design um, and operate and sustain these next generation UAVs which the Air Force is, is kind of sort of two names for them. Like one is the autonomous, autonomous collaborative platform, which speaks to sort of this family of new UAVs the Air Force wants to build. And then collaborative combat aircraft, which is the name I, I, we've seen in the press more. And it's really their, their primary focus right now. And that's the idea of pairing a new UAV, a new autonomous UAV with um, a, a manned fighter, fighter jet. So, um, that's what we were looking at is what does this next generation of UAVs look like? And so the first question is, well, like, why do we even need them? And so it gets to this gap question. And so we asked these experts, you know, what are the gaps? And they resonated with the things the Air Force has been talking about for a while. ISR in a very dense, uh, um, contested, highly contested air environment. How do we maintain custody over mobile targets? surface action groups, air, mobile air defense systems, moving teleporter erector launchers for ballistic missiles. How do we actually track these things in such a dense threat environment? So that was a huge right. gap right there. Um, 
So ISR. And then the other biggie was counter air. So a big concern. And again, they were focused on the penetrating strike mission, but these gaps really speak to, you know, force structure wide. So the other big issue is counter air. And so how do we um, do our air to air capability, especially over the long ranges we have in the Indo-Pacific? And, and we need this capability both for like counter air missions, but also for suppression of enemy air defenses. Well, right now we don't really have the legs to do that in the Indo-Pacific. And so another huge gap was in counter air. Um, and then finally, EW, electronic warfare, being able to um, jam adversary systems. We know they're going to be trying to jam us. So how do we do that? So those are some of the major gaps that the experts identified in this workshop. Um, what are, you know, as you um, look at this, right? I mean, the Air Force does have a tendency, and I think it is, uh, and I'm not trying to be parochial here, of measuring three times before cutting. And so there tends to be not as much movement in Air Force programs as, for example, we see in Army and, and Navy programs, uh, right? I mean, the Air Force would never build an entire class of ships, not being particularly interested in building them, for example, uh, like the littoral yeah. combat ship. From your standpoint, what's the Air Force getting right about this collaborative uh, aircraft program, this new modular uh, unmanned uh, platform uh, that they want to build, uh, right? How good of a job are they doing as far as you're concerned? And what do they have to bear in mind to make sure that they get it right? Well, it's been fascinating to watch them go through this process. You know, I, I did my dissertation on the MQ-1 Predator and sort of the Air Force struggles to integrate that program over the last two decades. And this is something very different. You're seeing senior leaders get behind this effort. And I think there is some real momentum there. Well, well, it'll be very interesting to see um, that, that these Air Force leaders have all said, like, look out for the 24 budget request. You, you'll know we're serious when you see it. And so uh, standing by for that. But in terms of uh, my sense from uh, right now is that the Air Force is taking a pretty solid approach to this. They've, they're, you know, we've heard repeatedly from General Job and General White, like, we've done the analytics on this. We think there's a use case and we're trying to communicate that, I mean, with industry and Congress. And so um, I think they're going about it the right way. I think they are doing the analysis. I think a real challenge for them is that a lot of this is highly classified. Like, how do we fight and win a war with China? A lot of that's going to get into classified information really quickly. Um, and so where they're, they're, they're having to walk that tight line is like, you know, saying like, hey, we have the analytics, but not really being able to show them probably as publicly as they want to. And I think that was sort of the idea with the workshop is like, let's bring in industry and let, let's try to get Congress involved in this. And as much as we can talk about what these UAVs might look like. But I do think the Air Force has totally gone the right direction in doing this classified analysis. They have to. They have to do the ops analysis to make sure these things are going to work. Um, and, and they need to move fast. And they know that. So getting in front of this, managing risk aggressively is really going to be the name of the game. And, and I think as long as they're communicating to Congress clearly, like, hey, we know there's risk when you build next generation UAVs that have more autonomy. Um, we, we think we can manage this risk. I, I mean, I think communicating that message really clearly is, is incredibly important. Um, but I, you know, everything that I hear from them is they have done this analysis and they feel comfortable with it. So um, I think they're on the right track so far. Among the topics that you guys uh, touched on, right? I mean, you talked about command and control. Uh, obviously, there's intelligence, uh, surveillance, and reconnaissance that goes into it. So building a penetrating strike platform like this is more than just about the aircraft, right? You need the entire targeting enterprise that goes uh, with that. What's the investment that we need to actually realize an entire kill chain, Caitlin, that can you know, do this kind of targeting, this kind of tracking, this kind of strike? at distance and in an environment that is going to get increasingly denied the closer you get uh, to uh, China's coast. Yeah. Or certainly within the island chains, right? 
Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to do is call attention to an article that my boss, General Deptula, wrote recently, which just was so great in explaining what JADC2 is in a way that I, I'd never heard before <laughs> and just made it so clear. He just said, JADC2 equals global targeting system. That's what this is. So that's what we're trying to build. And I found that incredibly clarifying. <laughs> so, well, he's wanted... also one of the creators of the concept, right? I mean, yeah. so when he was in uniform, he's somebody who's called for this consistently for decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's so many different facets of it. Like it, it's, a, it's about communications, yes, but it's also about like command and control and where you put it. Like he talked about in his article, he's, you know, you don't hear airmen say this term very much, but mission command. Okay, we've got to think about devolving authorities here. Like this is another part of it. So there's a communications piece, and there's a real command and control and doctrinal piece. Um, and and so it's it's just so broad in what it's trying to tackle. And 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 the Air Force is kind of moving in this direction. So you know, General Deptula has been vocal, but the Air Force doctrine actually changed about a, a year and a half ago. You know, always the expression was centralized control, decentralized execution. I think it's now centralized control, distributed execution or something to that effect to indicate right. like, look, we know we're devolving authorities here. So there's a huge doctrine piece. There is a tech piece, but at the end of the day, it's really just, um, I think in the, in the context of the Indo-Pacific, it's sort of like you're going in assumption has to be communications will be degraded or denied. And so therefore, what does that mean for how you think about Air Force doctrine? Like if I'm alone and unafraid in my in uh, at, at some forward operating base, you know, I'm in, in Tinian or something. Can can I, as a major, do what I need to do to execute the fight and turn sorties? I mean, there's a doctrinal piece, and then there's also a comms piece where, if you know, let's talk about the manned unmanned aircraft. Let's talk about collaborative combat aircraft. Huge decisions to make here. So if we think that the airspace is degraded or denied, we have a couple choices. We can say, okay, we think we're going to partner in these unmanned systems with manned systems, and, there, and then we need the manned air crews to control these things. Well, that's a comm problem. Is it an easy tactical comm problem? Like, I'm not sure. Like, do you think you need space? That gets harder. Or do you say, okay, I actually, what my end, desired end state is to, is to have these collaborative combat aircraft operating essentially alone and unafraid. Like, they're going to be autonomous. I'm going to reduce the burden on the air crew. I'm going to let, let these things loose. And I'm not going to worry about calm. These are the kinds of choices. I mean, these are huge choices the Air Force will have to make going forward, just based on the premise that we're going to have these denied and denied um, comms environments. And and I don't I don't think anyone has the right answer yet. It's going to be like how fast does the AI move? Um, how quick do we trust this AI? We we're just not there yet. We don't know. And your uh, colleague uh, Heather Penny has done a tremendous job, and I think uh, you know it, one of the best. Uh, papers uh, in, a, in a while was her pixie dust paper uh, about the the importance of um, military folks understanding this there's you know it's not, it's not pixie dust it's not magic powder that can you know AI is not just can't be sprinkled on stuff to solve problems you really have to do some rigorous analytic work uh, and understand what the opportunity but the but the constraints are of that AI um, if, if you wanted to do something uh, yeah. which I think is important let me let me um, ask you um, you know, it, Dave Alexander was there, obviously General Atomics, and they're one of our sponsors or best known uh, for the Reaper and Predator aircraft, but there was Avenger and there was a lot of other work. There was MQ-25, the company uh, competed on, uh, and, and indeed it was an airplane that the Navy liked for its size and capacities, even though they picked uh, the Boeing aircraft, which which did submit a lower bid. Um, what 
you know, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute, he was at uh, Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments at the time, was writing about what a forward construct looks like, an operating construct looks like, that blends everything from fifth generation and sixth generation aircraft to actually unmanned systems like Reaper and Predator into a very, very effective nodal uh, system for command and control, for strike uh, and reconnaissance. What is what is that mix? How much of this is a new aircraft that's modular? And how much of this, Caitlin, is, is actually better interconnecting, right? I mean, channeling Dave Goldfein, channeling Dave Deptula circa 2003, it's really about how you're plugging everything together as opposed to the individual things, even if the individual things are really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so my short answer is I think it's both plugging things together and having new things. And the reason I think we need new things is because the Air Force just has such a huge, and it's not alone in this. I think the Navy and the Army have these challenges too. Like their forces are old, they're aging. They all went through the procurement holiday of the 1990s. So they're just smaller forces with exquisite systems. And like at some point, you know, if you have two great powers locking heads in a great power war, it's going to be about attrition. Everyone's got the technology. It's about the attrition and the staying power. So that's where you need to bring in like a new generation of UAVs to kind of offset your capacity gaps, if nothing else. That said, obviously connecting things is a huge part of this too. And being able to get those sensor to shooter timelines down as much as possible. And that's where you want to definitely make the most of your existing systems. And so I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities to do things like comm relay with uh, Reaper and also like base defense. I mean, and then, and then also there's like these very interesting programs going on with sensors on Reaper, like for SIGINT or like, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I think that those sensors can, can stand off at pretty long ranges. So, you know, you don't have to put everything right in the mix. It doesn't all have to be, you know, right up against that coastal air defense system. You can have some stuff that's at standoff, standoff range doing really important things. Um, and I think that's um, a key place, you know, again, comms relay ISR, uh, where things like Reaper can contribute. And, and so it's really a combination of both like, yeah, we do need new platforms, but also like connectivity is critical. And we have some systems now that we can, we can use to leverage that. Let me ask uh, one last question. You have part one, which is penetrating strike. What are the subsequent uh, parts of this series, uh, and we look forward to having you and Gonzo, uh, or both, or one, or yeah. the other, come on uh, to discuss them. But uh, give us a sense on what you guys are trying to accomplish uh, as part of this air power, uh, aerospace power yeah. series you guys are producing. Yeah, yeah. So we we went into this. If you remember last year, Secretary Kendall had these. You know, he announced these operational imperatives, and there were seven. And he said a couple things. He said, "I think we can build UAVs to partner up with bombers." And I think we can build UAVs to partner up with fighters. He ended up shifting his focus more to the fighters and the collaborative combat aircraft. But I think there was a big misunderstanding at the time where people thought, oh, now he's not going to build UAVs for the bomber. The reality is whatever the next UAV is that the Air Force builds, and we heard this from General Drove and General White yesterday, like it's going to be applicable to multiple mission sets. Like there's no reason that you build a UAV to team with a fighter that, you know, let's say it's a jammer UAV. There's no reason you can't also pair that up with a, a, a penetrating strike package. Like there needs to be some interchangeability there. Um, we just don't have the money to build like, you know, these uh, boutique or tailored custom UAVs for each manned aircraft. So um, 
kind of that was our going in principle. And I think, and and so, uh, so the first project we looked at penetrating strike, because the other thing with penetrating strike is it's such a complex mission. You can really, it's a great sandbox to think about the range of different missions these UAVs could have. Um, and for our next project, we are going to zero in on counter air. So we're going to look at sort of like, what does it look like to do a UAV of some kind to go with NGAD? And we're still sort of in the like project formulation phase with that, but um, in general, looking at that air dominance, dominance mission. Caitlin, uh, thanks very much. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Look forward to actually having some deeper conversations uh, as we go into the new year and certainly track this series as it goes through the process. Hope you and yours have uh, great holidays and a very happy new year uh, and wishing you a happy, healthy and prosperous 2023. Same to you, Vago. Thanks for having me on.